Good afternoon and welcome to the Liberty Block. I am Steve and with me is Elliot, the founder of Liberty Block. Today we are having what we hope and plan to be the first of several interviews with freshman legislators in New Hampshire. And we, were, we are honored to begin with someone we consider to be a friend of Liberty Block, Melissa Blasek, a legislator who worked extremely hard and had a great impact on the just ended legislative term. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us. What we would love to hear from you is since you first started to run to be a rep, which I assume is about a year ago, I don't know, through your campaign and first term, what were your hopes, expectations, plans? What did you learn about the reality that you're comfortable sharing? What do you feel you accomplished? What got in the way of accomplishing more, et cetera, and start wherever you like. Wow. Okay. That was a lot of questions. Um, now I've been very honest that I ran, uh, for office. Yes. It was a little over a year ago and actually, um, Liberty block was the first interview I did when I was running. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I was very honest. I, I ran because I'm the executive director of reopen New Hampshire. And my goal was to end the state of emergency and help make changes to state of emergency laws. And um, as the year went on, we all realized it was so much more than just the state of emergency laws. I mean, the COVID fascism issue was like a moving target. Um, and you have to constantly be sort of hitting back at authoritarianism coming from above. So, um, but yeah, to, to work on those issues. And I mean, overall, we were, um, somewhat successful. Um, <laughs> I was, I guess I was naive. I didn't think, I thought, okay, DC is lost. We all know that it's, that's a waste of time. It's um, a, a machine that can't be moved in any way. Um, but Concord is different. Well, Concord is different, but it's not that different. Politics is still politics. And, um, behind the scenes things happen and um, backstabbing happens and, and all of those kind of things to constantly get in your way. It felt like every day there seemed to be something different, especially in the last month. But um, overall we were pretty successful. Now, I there was a House Freedom Caucus um, two terms ago. And when, right the day after the election, um, and I saw the numbers, I immediately was like, we have to get a House Freedom Caucus again, um, because it won't take many people to be really effective with such a slim majority. Um, and I, you know, a bunch of us immediately started talking about the budget and the budget is going to be the path forward with such a slim majority need to have a budget. They, they need to have a, the budget. So what can we do with that? Um, and that became, the House Freedom Caucus became a really big tool to a lot of our goals this year. Um, back at the beginning of the legislative year, which is beginning of January, um, the governor was publicly asked about all of the state of emergency reform bills. And he laughed at the entire concept of deeming to like take away even a minuscule amount of his power. Um, and, uh, you know, he certainly had a state of emergency 
and that we get a lot of orders at that point in time. And we decided, well, then if he's going to laugh at the concept, then state of emergency reform has to go in the budget. So we pretty successfully got exactly what we wanted in the house version of the budget. Um, Oh, and for everybody who doesn't know the budgetary process, um, the, the governor gives his wishes for the budget to the House first, and the House craps a budget. They vote on it. It gets into the Senate. They do what they want to it. They vote on it. And then it goes to committee of conference where the Senate and the House have to reconcile their differences. Um, and then we all vote on it again. So when we initially voted on it in the House, it did have exactly what we wanted in it. Um, and then the Senate removed all of that. And then a committee of conference, they put back some of it, but not all of it. Um, but so we did get some state of emergency reform. Now, ending the state of emergency was one of my other goals, right? Uh, and I did file um, HCR2, which was the resolution to terminate the state of emergency. Um, the way our law used to be written, it required a resolution, a concurrent resolution to terminate the state of emergency it was the only resolution like that in statute. What nobody thought of when they wrote the law, because law had never been used before, was all resolutions are treated as bills. So they have to be submitted only within our two week time frame that we're allowed to submit bills. And, or it requires a two thirds rule suspension. And then the other thing that no one thought of is that the Senate has really weird rules where any resolution that comes from the house requires a rule suspension because they just don't accept resolutions. So the resolution was completely impractical from the very start, but I did try it. Um, we realized all these things at the end hour, the way that the lawmakers who had written the law thought, they thought they could do it at any time. And um, literally one of the last hours of the two week bill submission period, I realized all of this and I filed it. Um, so we did have, you know, had a public hearing, um, but the reality is it wasn't gonna go anywhere because the Senate was never gonna be able to pass it because they don't accept resolutions from the house. So it got retained, but um, you know, the governor's feet were held to the fire and he did end all the, the COVID restrictions and then thought he was like good and is telling the press that he's going to keep his state of emergency and his unlimited powers for the rest of 2021. And I started writing op-eds being like, well, that's just a lie because other states don't have, there's two other states that don't have a state of emergency and they're still getting their money. Um, and I had actually read the laws and you can still get your money. So he was saying it was just for money. Mm. Enough of a pressure was put that on him that he did end the state of emergency um, earlier than most of the other states did. Actually, most of the states are still in the state of emergency. So those were some successes, some failures. We didn't get all of the state of emergency reform that we wanted. Um, I mean, that's me putting on rose colored glasses. It was way dirtier than I thought it was gonna be. It so was- in, in what way that you're willing to share when you said backstabbing, you mean the people's word was not backed up by deeds? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, a lot of that. A lot of promises made and promises, you know, broken, certainly, um, pretty constantly, actually. Um, 
especially, um, you know, we made certain deals with state of emergency reform all the way through. I mean, it really, it came down to committee of conference and it was never supposed to get there. We were supposed to get what we wanted for many steps. There were like a hundred steps leading up to that moment that we were supposed to have gotten what we wanted. And then the promises were broken and the promises were broken. And the promises were broken. Um, again, these were all like hush hush things behind closed doors. So we didn't have proof like, Hey, you said, blah, blah, blah. um, because these were, you know, spoken word agreements. Um, and then at the end hour, we got like half of what we wanted. What exactly was the state of emergency reform that did pass in the budget that is now law? Okay. Um, so the, what our law said before was that, um, the governor has unlimited authority, can do anything he wants. Um, the courts had said that including anything unconstitutional, if he wants to, they thought it was that broad. Um, and it was and, for a limited time, right? And for, and he can renew it on his own for as many times as he wants. Um, so those 21 day segments are like meaningless when they can just keep going and going and going. And the only like check of authority that existed was this resolution to end the state of emergency. But I just said of all the reasons why it was impractical and could never happen, right? So what we did get in the budget is the, now it's not a resolution. It's just a simple majority vote. It's just a simple motion. And it can be made in any session um, at any time. And it will only require a, in majority vote, not a two thirds like rule suspension. So um, that did get changed. Um, and we can still do it anytime we want, but now we have to vote, do that motion every 90 days, which is just stupid because if we can do it anytime we want, why does it make a difference? And that's a vote to terminate the state of emergency. I don't know why this 90 days thing was nonsense, but it is at least a, a majority motion. And uh, we have the ability to take away a specific order which is important because there might actually at some point in time be a, a real emergency, but then you get like a dictator in there and they decide to throw in some terrible, you know, orders. Well, by majority vote the at any point in time, the legislature can get rid of that. Um, now that has to be both houses, correct? Yes. All both things have to be that both houses uh, agree. And I'll tell you why that's a little bit of a problem, but yes, both houses must agree to terminate the state of emergency or to terminate an order. Okay. Um, now what stops the governor from doing what I believe other governors have done? Okay. You terminated it tomorrow. Somebody else sneezed and now we're doing it for a slightly different reason. The order thing could be done that way, I suppose. Our law was actually already better than most states' laws, where it already said that if the legislature terminates the state of emergency, the governor may not redeclare it for the same circumstances. So it, it, it already had language in there to suggest that, like, if we terminated it because of COVID, you can't redeclare it because of a health emergency, you know. But the Delta um, variant, they would say that. that. I was about to say that. The, the courts variant. would agree that it's different. Right. I mean, obviously it's not perfect, um, but yes, other states like Wisconsin had a governor, their law just said every 60 days, the, the state of emergency must terminate, period. Okay. And he was just redeclaring it every 60 days. Um, now they've sued the pants off of him and actually found that even though their law didn't say that he couldn't do that, the courts determined that he couldn't do that. Um, so that's kind of good. But so there is some case precedent for, for that, actually. Um, and I bring that up because I have two articles I'm looking at um, for my next podcast 
One of them is the Washington governor saying we have a permanent emergency because yep. of climate change. Yep. And the other one is Salt Lake City declares racism a public health crisis. So Salt once, Lake City? Yeah, Salt Lake City. And I know other, other municipalities, other uh, jurisdictions have said that racism is a public health crisis. It's an emergency. So yeah, and you give governors more power. Well, more to do it with gun control. Yeah, he wants to do a gun control. Once you give the governor any power, it's so scary. And I don't think yeah. anybody ever thought governors would abuse these so horrifically. So yeah. I guess my question to you is, were you surprised? Okay, if I understood correctly, the Republican Senate didn't want to change the law at all? They didn't have the votes to um, have two thirds majority because that's what their rules would have required. So even if all the Republicans had voted to end the state of emergency, they couldn't have because of their rules. There wouldn't have been enough votes. So the um, is, that, actually, is that your question? Yeah, very much the rules to consider the resolution or what, the rules to do what? So house rules and Senate rules trump statute. Um, so, can we not use the word Trump since he lost, please? <laughs> um, so, I know. People keep telling me to stop using that word. I like that word. Uh, so, word. But um, so basically a long time ago, the Senate got tired of all the resolutions coming from the House because they thought they were a waste of time. And so they made this rule that basically said that any but like three circumstances of resolutions, and they forgot about the state of emergency one, okay, um, they just don't accept. And so to be able to override those rules would require a rule suspension, and that's a two-thirds majority, and they're, they just didn't, even if what, every Republican- What about Republican a regular bill to, to limit a dictator's power in emergency? Does the, the Senate- how many senators supported some some limitations? I don't know. We never really got them to get that far. Okay, let me go through. Let me finish going through what we got in the budget, and then I'll tell you what happened with the other bills. So, um, because you no, know, the Senate's a problem. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to like uh, color that one. Um, so, in the budget, we also got so we got the ability to terminate state of emergency, ability to terminate an order. We got um, control over the money from the feds, which is what the Democrats actually sued over, um, which that was like an odd uh, to me. And we got a separability clause that says that if any particular order or whatever is found to be invalid or unconstitutional, actually, unconstitutional was a word put in there. Um, it applied, it was null and void to all persons and circumstances because it didn't happen in New Hampshire, but in a lot of other states, people sued like a business suit saying like, um, you know, uh, for their business being closed and they won the lawsuit, but it only applied to them. This says that it, if one person and it's found to be invalid or unconstitutional, it is null and void period for everyone. Um, so those were some positive steps forward. Now, what happened with the other state of emergency bills? So HB 542 is the Religious Protection Act, and it basically says that religious institutions can't be held to a higher or harsher standard during a state of emergency than any other institution. That did go the distance, and the Senate accepted that. We all moved forward. The governor, I think he's already signed it. I don't, I'm not sure, but he's going to. Um, HB 440 is the one that really gets me riled up, okay? So HB 440 is a very simple rule. All it, Bill rather, all it says is that during a state of emergency, the governor may not suspend the, the constitution 
or civil liberties. It's really like I, the fact that we would have to have a bill like that is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And the Senate retained it. They said they need to work on it. What exactly needs to be worked on is something that fundamental. So anybody watching, please contact your senators and tell them they need to pass that bill next year. Um, that's a big project for me for the fall is to work on the senators. That has to be passed. That's completely absurd. Most names of senators um, need to be pushed. Well, yeah, the senators are a problem. And I will say that it historically in New Hampshire, when the Senate is the same party as the governor, they tend to do what the governor would like. Um, they ended up pushing back a little bit more than I think he originally wanted, but I think it's just because the House put so much pressure on him that he didn't really have that much of a choice and, and everyone had to capitulate a little bit, but um, they historically so kind of just do what he wants. When this bill went, the budget went to the Senate from you guys, yeah. and I think you sent it, you said they sent it back, not wanting to make any changes. That would not have required a rule change, right? They just didn't want to agree to that in the budget. No, that's not how the budget works. So the budget came to the House first. The House, House crafts the budget, okay? Right. And we crafted the budget, including state of emergency reform, and we passed that. And then it goes to the Senate, and the Senate can change the budget in any way. And they did. They made a lot of changes. And one of them was that they simply removed the entire section about state of emergency reform. Right. So I'm saying, so the Republican senators, even yep, they the majority of them, we're not in favor of any change. That is, well, they did pass HB 417. So because we didn't trust the Senate, okay? Because we didn't trust them, we had a separate bill moving forward with pretty much identical state of emergency reform language that was not attached to the budget, but it had the same language as the budget, basically, okay? Um, and they did pass that. But they watered it down so dramatically that it was like, it did nothing. It was stupid. The, they, we agreed on a couple of things, but like not much, okay? And so what happened then was that we went to committee of conference and they did HB 417 committee of conference before the budget committee of conference. Well, at least for that part of it. And they just kept coming back with, basically they just did not want to make, they didn't want to budge at all, even though the house had been willing to budge their position a little bit. And they all, it was just, they walked away and it was a non-concurrence. So the bill is completely dead because um, the house and the Senate could not. And I thought, and I was actually, frankly, I was urging them to walk away because I thought, okay, you make a strong stance here. They won't, you know, screw with us too badly in with the budget right they'll be they'll understand that we're serious you know did not work that way when the house members walked out on 417 and it was a non-concur within an hour basically they they started passing the exact same language that the house was not concurring with in the budget so that was um the day before the end of committee of conference and and we <clears throat> Did a lot of work that night and then they did come to the table the next day the house did with a version of state of emergency reform to put in the budget that the freedom caucus approved and um this is the part i can't be like super detailed about although anyone could go back and watch it watch real closely about what really happened there um and we really 
we did not get it at all. Uh, we got the Senate version, which is what I described before. So they actually had budged a little bit at that point and kind of come to a, a better agreement. But um, we were supposed to get our version. It was like a whole backroom kind of situation. But that was a really big disappointment. And um, there was a lot of manipulating and backstabbing that happened sort of in the final hours. And then once the committee of conference report is signed and over, which it has to be by like that Thursday at four o'clock. And this all literally happened like Thursday, three o'clock, three to four. And it was like, it was like right up against the deadline. And um, once it's signed, it, it can't be changed at all. It can't even be amended on the floor or anything like that. So it's, 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 a, it's just a straight up or down vote. You vote for it or you vote against it. I know a lot of people wanted us to vote against the budget and tank the budget, but there's like realities here. So the issue being, you can't, so let's say hypothetically, we had tanked the budget. Then they have to go back and renegotiate. But they can't change the language. They can just remove things. Um, so we weren't going to get better state of emergency language. We actually just might have lost the whole thing. So that's why I wanted to vote for it. But we did get, and I know a lot of people think it's like not that big of a deal, but after the committee of conference report was finalized, we figured out what the Senate and supposedly the lawyers issues were with our version. And we came up with a compromise that I actually think is very good. Um, and, but it was too late to put it in the budget. So um, the governor did sign a letter saying that he approves of it. And the letter was leaked to the press. And there were lots of statements made to the press about it. So we have things, unlike all of my other times that I got stabbed in the back, those were just like verbal agreements. So no, there's no proof, right? At least this gives me something to like wag in their faces if next year I don't get what they all were like, yes, you can have that. All right, just so I'm clear and so the listeners are clear, because this is so complicated for me. I know, I know. But I feel currently, like it's really complicated. With what passed in the budget, so we, we just signed into law. A, the legislature can end an emergency at any time if if each chamber has a majority Agreed. vote. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and any order on its own as well. I'm sorry. Say that again. States of emergency also end on their own after 90 days. No. They don't end unless there's a vote. Okay. That that was the problem. And that's a difficult yeah. thing, and, and we talked about this: the affirmative vote versus affirmative extension. Um, it takes yeah. some spine, which you know is pretty rare in politics. It takes a lot of spine for uh, legislators, especially of the same party as, as the dictator, to right. have an affirmative vote to end an emergency. Correct. So Correct. What I, because I don't see that being practical unless the governor's a different party than both chambers. And, and I, because really, I mean, that's just, that's just the case, right? I mean, people are, are spineless. So there you go. I wanted it to be the House position was that we wanted it to be a vote of the legislature to extend the state of emergency so that it would only take one chamber saying no for it to terminate. Now, there supposedly the lawyer issues with this were that the constitution requires that both chambers agree for there to be an action, okay? That both chambers must concur for the action. And if, if in this case, it's to terminate the state of emergency, that the, the state of emergency would terminate with only one saying yes or no. Does that make sense? Yes. I yeah, but it's not an action. It's the opposite of an action. 
Exactly. Now, my argument to that is you're, you're assuming that the state of emergency is the new normal. No, the Constitution is the normal, okay? The, the state of emergency already was the action. So therefore, it should require both chambers to keep the action going. But they did not see it that way. So what we all agreed to was that after um, 84 days, I don't know, it was like, he gets to renew it three times in 84 days. The state of emergency terminates. That is it. Then the legislature, if they think there still is an emergency, has to declare their own. So therefore, it requires both chambers to say yes. But if there's a Delta variant, the, go the governor could declare his own after that anyway, another one. I mean, technically, I don't know. I don't know. That would be a lawsuit. That would be a very clear lawsuit because that, that's that's like really. And if there's a lawsuit, one judge who works for the government. Oh, no, no. Excuse me. I'm going to I'm going to correct you on that. There was a judge just the other day that overturned DACA and it only took 11 years. So I think we should have faith in the judicial system to make things better. You know, it's funny, I've probably asked you this question, I asked myself this question. States of emergency powers make sense under certain circumstances, nowadays less so because of mass communication. So we're living in a time, I'd say the last few months, there have been some incredible weather emergencies around the, around the world. Actually, where entire cities have been flooded. Hundreds, I think, were just killed in Belgium and Germany from floods. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, those are genuine emergencies. The governor has to have emergency powers, but it's got to be no more than a week that he can't get a legislator together, even in those unbelievable circumstances. The and House version was 21 days, and then that's it. That's it. Really, what is their logic for even more than a week other than we don't want the legislature to have the power? Oh, if we're all in the bunker. Okay, this is what they're all thinking. Okay, well, but what if there's nuclear war and where Seabrook gets taken out and we're all in the bunker? And, you know, so I have, I wrote a version of state of emergency reform that did get submitted, um, HB 275, if anyone wants to go read it. And it was like, yeah, it was one and then that's it. State of, the, the legislature has to meet to vote. There's no exceptions except for one. Let's say we're all in the bunker. The nuclear option is, okay, that at the end of that time, though, the governor still does not get to declare it again himself, but a unanimous vote of the executive council could. But during that time, until the legislature is able to meet and vote themselves, the state may not collect any taxes. I love it. Well, they could. Nice. You're all in a bunker. How can they collect taxes? Well, exactly. All automated technology. Um, but yeah, I, I understand. I, I think what you're what you're getting at is that it starves them. So if you want to be beating me, you can beat me. But after, but you can't eat while beating me. So you're going to starve after two three days. Exactly. You have to make it hurt so that it's only used in the most extreme circumstances. So we have another state of emergency law that we didn't touch this year. Okay. Um, because the governor never used it in this emergency, but it's this terrible law, HB 4 colon 46, um, not HB, sorry, RSA 4 colon 46. And it, it basically gives the governor the ability to seize private property during a state of emergency. And I am going to put in a bill this year that's just going to make it like I want it to be repealed because I don't ever see a circumstance under which that's necessary. I just think like, OK, th they tried to repeal it years ago, and this was the argument, apparently. What if there's a pandemic so bad 
that the bodies are just lining up in the street and we would need to get the freezer trucks from Shaw's to be able to like get the bodies transported. And I personally think that if things were really like that awful, they'd probably just give you the freezer trucks. Yes, and but, if, if really, if everyone was dying, like 99% were dying, the law would break down, wouldn't it? People would start looting, you know, a burn loot murder. Their I, I mean, it would just people be would start looting all over. Right. So I still think it should be repealed, but it'll never be repealed. So my uh, my version um, that I'm going to put in would just make it so astronomically expensive for the government to ever do that. That again, they would never do it unless it was the most extreme and dire of circumstances, and they just probably would never do it. Right. And nationally, we have that Defense Authorization Act, which I believe lets the president take property from anybody during an emergency, which I believe that's part of what they did was it with the vaccines or other things they talked about using that and may have used it. So great. You, know, have you mentioned something, Melissa, that gets me kind of off the subject, but but I want to mention it. I forget if you said it was 417, that bill that you can't believe no one was for because it said HB the governor has to respect, he has to respect civil rights and he has to respect yeah. the constitution. And you're laughing about it. So you probably know that we at Liberty Block at one point thought Convention of States was a really cool idea and studied it up. And then mostly Elliot or Alu decided it's not a good idea for a whole bunch of reasons. And one of the really good reasons was if they don't follow the constitution now, why would they follow it when it's amended? So here you are telling me we can't pass a law that says literally you have to follow the constitution. Right, All right, yeah. So what is that? Yeah. Convention of States going to change, and that's why I just wanted to point that out. I will. Okay, I'll tell you a little behind the scenes story because I think we have enough time here separating. But um, HB four forty was written by somebody outside of the legislature, and um, originally there, I won't say who, but there was a senator who was going to sponsor it, and at the eleventh hour, he pulled out because he said that he couldn't get a single senator who said they would vote for it. And so we amended a house bill to be that bill. And um, frankly, I would like to put the, they've retained it so that they can't be put on record, but I would like to see them put on record because they all deserve to be replaced if they won't vote for a bill that just says the constitution has to be followed. I thought, I, I'm so naive. Like I grew up my whole life thinking like the constitution was the ultimate authority and it always has to be followed. How stupid was I? <laughs> yeah, that's what, it's not a self-enforcing document. Um, I want to bring up one other thing because I think it's something I believe you excelled at, among other things, is working with and getting information from legislators across the country. And I think you began using that. I'm not sure. It's always been a big thing for me, always. The last year or two, I think it's a great idea why you did it, how you think it worked out, how should other people be doing it more, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I will give you credit because I hadn't really thought to do that until you said that. And then I started calling people. Um, yeah, no, I, I well, I'm, I'm endorsed by Young Americans for Liberty. So um, I have a lot of access to their other endorsed legislators. And they do tend to endorse some of the, you know, the best in the country, really the most like liberty focused people um, who would think in the same way that I would. Um, 
yeah, I actually figured out and I unraveled the entire state of emergency money situation that even the governor could not seem to figure out as far as like federal dollars. I figured that out because I contacted legislators in Wisconsin and um, and Idaho and because uh, they have staffs and I don't have a staff and uh, their staff had done a lot of the research. And then I also talked to a legislator in Florida who's a lawyer and he had read um, a lot of the, the federal laws um, surrounding the federal dollar situation. Um, and he's, he's helped me with a bunch of things because Florida passed a lot of good legislation this year and he'll like send it to me and explain what the kind of the process that they went through. And then um, I even talked to, I talked to a legislator in Hawaii who is not a Young Americans for Liberty person and is actually a Democrat, um, but he is really strong on medical freedom. And so we talked about different ideas. He unfortunately is literally an island. Um, he is the only person who votes for his bills, basically. They're all dead on arrival. Um, but uh, yeah, so no, I, I, I have worked with people. Um, and then we're actually talking about doing a virtual brainstorming session this summer on medical freedom issues with legislators around the country because um, I have to figure out how I'm going to handle that one. Um, we have a lot of ideas, but. Do you find, were other legislators doing this at all? Do you find them receptive to the idea? Very little. I've only talked to one other state rep who seems to know reps in other states and talk to them. Um, yeah, otherwise I don't know anybody who does that. Um, and I don't know why, because if people have good ideas, I wish we would have done that with state of emergency reform, honestly, because some other states had better ideas than what we came up with. Although I will say in New Hampshire attacked that issue much stronger than really any other state did. We had such a large group of legislators working on that issue. We put in like I think there were like 20 bills about it uh, with all these different ideas, but some uh, and, and other states, they would do like one bill and try to put a bunch of ideas in it. Maybe um, they, they just weren't really, um, they didn't think it was as important, but some people did come up with, with some interesting ideas in other states that I wish I would have thought of. And if, you know, I would have called them and talked to them, you know, I would have had some better bill ideas. And that's so why I wanted am to- Am I correct that there's really, there's no infrastructure for state legislators to identify who's involved in what and how to work together? There's one organization, but it's, I haven't found it to be very useful at all or helpful at all. That's why Young Americans for Liberty is great because they have their Hazlitt Coalition, which are their endorsed legislators. And we are very connected and um, we, we have more access to each other. And like, I don't need to listen to the rhino. Like, I don't really need to talk to the rhino or the Democrat. I need to talk to other people who kind of think the same way that I do. And that's why that organization is good because they do think the same way that I do. So we might actually have ideas that we would like from each other. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that was, it's definitely been helpful. Um, absolutely to know people in other states. Because I've always said, I, um, you know, my impression is because you were out there and worked really, really hard and tried really hard, you got knocked around quite a bit. I did, yeah. Well, you know, when you stick your neck out. <laughs> no, you you're over the target. So I have to assume for any state legislator, anybody at any level, 
like if I would be a Republican legislator in New York City, I would be the loneliest guy in the entire world. So I would love to know that there are people out there who are going through the same stuff and maybe we can trade Kevlar vests and stuff like that. So, you know, but seriously, no, I, 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 I will say like, I, I'll kind of use this expression. I'm like, oh, I found the me in, in Wisconsin. I found, I found the me in Idaho. And all of us are, yeah, very hated usually. Yeah, can't, especially by like the establishment, maybe are usually our governor, um, can't sponsor bills. Like my name can't be on any bill, I don't think next year. Like I don't think I can crime sponsor anything. Mm-hmm. I'll have to have a- I mean, there are mechanisms to punish people who get out of- uh, Right, right. And I want to yeah, say- no, exactly. yeah. mm-hmm. um, Were there other issues that surprised you that were opposed by Republicans? That surprised me. Um, Besides like 440, which you're like, wait a minute, how can anybody oppose that? Were there other well, well, right. Um, not really, because I do know that I often think about certain things differently than more moderate Republicans do. So I, I don't think anything surprised me, no. I mean, the fact that the state like, still can't get right to work past is just like, <sighs> but- um, So have there are a lot of Republicans not on the same side of that issue? Yeah. And what is their stated logic or reasoning? They like unions, I don't know. They, they, like, they like unions. I mean, that's really their only thing. They. Well, I like they think that unions I, should have that power. They don't see it as a, oh, and then there's the occasional like liberty leaning person who thinks that we're interfering with private businesses. And what they fail to see is that it was years of corporatism with unions at the federal level that created, you know, unfair, you know, advantages to unions at the federal level and right to work attempts to correct that, you know, corruption. But, you know, I mean, I'm pro-choice when it comes to unions. What, say that I'm pro-choice. Yeah. When it comes to unions. And exactly. The idea exactly. of not being pro-choice is just so. They think it weakens the union and they think that it is, uh, you know, bad for workers' rights. I, I actually don't know that. I think there were like 32 Republicans or something that voted against it. Um, most of them belong to a union. Do you find that people ever have an opportunity to actually talk about why they back, why they oppose? I mean, do you ever get like real answers or it's all kind of political couch, whatever? When it comes to really big ticket items like that one, where that was a big leadership priority this year was right to work. Um, No, the the no votes tend to stay quiet because they know that they're going to be, you know, maligned a lot when they vote no (laughs) by their own party. So no, they tend to kind of stay quiet. Now, the vaccine issue, for instance, um, that got talked about a lot because that kind of came out of left field. Um, It wasn't really a priority uh, at the beginning of the legislative year, and it became a priority, a leadership priority later in the year. and so that one was discussed, for instance, a lot. And I could, you know, and obviously I've discussed it on this show as well. There's just like a, well, honestly, most of the people who voted against my big vaccine amendment bill, the one that we all worked on there, what 
they were the real rhinos. Now they're going to claim that it's for one reason, but it's really for another reason. Um, except I would say there was like one exception. Okay. But they're claiming that it's because, you know, I don't want to tell private businesses what to do. And I can't tell them that they can't mandate a vaccine of their employees. Um, and that's not really the case though. Their records really don't show that they really believe that by any means or any stretch of the imagination. I think that they really like um, the COVID. These were just all like the typical people who voted against a lot of the reopen bills. Like they just love authoritarianism and, um, you know, <laughs> being controlling of other people's choices. And they really believe in vaccine mandates and all of that sort of thing. So um, I think that's, a lot of people are realizing, like myself included, people are realizing that there is no such thing as private business anymore in the socialist, yeah. fascist state of America, where we live in a corporate fascism. Yeah. Yep. Every every business is a partnership between government, between private and government. Yeah. Yeah. And Elliot has been converted by uh, Ed Maslisch. <laughs> Melissa, do you find that, because this is something I would assume, but you're inside, do you find that if you write um, like an op-ed, or if you bring issues to the public, that their support actually does influence how things go? So a New Hampshire Journal is, um, I like to say that it's the way that we all passive aggressively communicate with one another, <laughs> mm -hmm. because we all do read it. Um, all the insider politicians like read it. And we, yeah, we passive aggressively talk to each other that way. Um, it, it absolutely does make a difference. I, I really do think that putting things out in the public make a big difference. Like my op-eds about why the governor was wrong and the state of emergency does not need to continue to get federal money. I think that that one made a huge difference. And I, I think that the governor's office read it and everyone sort of- And have you gotten out. calls and emails from constituents of yours and from throughout New Hampshire about- uh, feedback? Do they support you? Do they not support you? Do they agree? The average person doesn't read those really. Do, do like it's really only political insiders. But um, I did have one that I received one negative constituent um, reply from. He told me that I was a rhino and not a real Republican like Sununu. And that um, I... They have medicines for that, you know. Let's show him the Republican platform. Right, exactly. Wow. And, and um, I am not a real Republican. And I was lying about Sununu and um, say, and I was totally wrong. And Sununu's totally right. And like, it was just this, it was so absurd. I never responded. I couldn't figure out how to respond in a decent way. So I just never responded. So no, yeah. that's the only feedback I've ever gotten from a constituent that I didn't already know. Um, about any one of my op-eds. Um, otherwise, like it's mostly the people who respond are like political insider people, people who are super involved in politics that I already generally know. And I've only ever gotten positive feedback, honestly. So you haven't found a way to activate constituency to kind of change where people are going? Like I you go on TV and you say, I need your support for such and such a bill. Please call your legislators. You don't find that that kind of thing. The works. average person is not an activist. So reopen was really good at creating grassroots activism. And they, we were frankly like more effective at that than any group, at least this year. And a lot of like past legislators, some of these never seen anything like it. 
Um, but no, my, like the average constituent is not like that. They don't, they don't get off, you know, their chair. They don't pay attention. They have no idea. We all know that when, that nobody pays attention to what we do in Concord, really. The average person goes and votes for their state legislators by thinking, hmm, I don't like what's going on in DC. What party controls that? I'll vote opposite now. Um, also, who signs did I see more? Who knocked at my door more? I'll vote for those people too. That's how they make their decision in the voting booth about state level politicians. But that's not to say Reopen was really great at getting a brand new kind of amount of activists um, active. We taught them how to be activists. Um, we, we kept them informed of all of the, the insider things. And, and yeah, no, absolutely. That, that really made a massive difference this year. State of emergency reform was not really, again, on, the, on leadership's minds um, as a priority until a couple weeks into the legislative season when they were getting dropped, you know, a thousand emails about state of emergency reform. And then they were like, oh, whoa, okay, yeah. And those are just people, uh, but they were people who were really fired up and really passionate about the COVID issue. And um, and we kind of harnessed, the reopen is really, the, we, we harnessed those people. So to reword my question, the only issue on which you found you could activate constituents was the reopen issue. Yes. And then something else that I saw activating a lot of energy, mostly from conservatives and libertarians and all non-racists, was CRT. Can you explain to us yes. what happened with critical race theory over the past few months in New Hampshire? Yeah, that really uh, like came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, there was a bill filed. Uh, it only had three sponsors. Um, and it was um, a bill to ban critical race theory. Honestly, when legislative season started, I didn't know what critical race theory was. I remember reading them being like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but it really like lit a fire. And what seriously lit a fire is when the governor was asked about it, he said he would veto it. And people went bananas, which was like, great. I actually, okay, so the day after he said that, I won't say who, I was talking to somebody in leadership, and he was like, I can't believe he said that. And I, and I said, why? This is amazing. Like, this is going to turn the tables. And I was right. It really did. Honestly, just the, the bill being filed did the job, right? It got every parent aware of what was happening in their kid's classroom. And every school board in the state now is being screamed at on a daily basis. Can you explain what it is for the viewers who don't yet know what CRT is? Um, so critical race theory is teaching somebody that they are inherently racist or inherently sexist because of their race or gender, and that the United States is an inherently racist country, um, you know, built on, you know, systemic racism or whatever. Um, so what we banned, you can still teach about racism, you can still teach about the history of racism and sexism and all of those things. But you cannot say to somebody that because you're white, you are inherently racist or because you're male, you're inherently sexist. And the bill, this bill passed? Or it no, did. It so that was the other thing we got put in the budget. The Freedom Caucus angled to get two things in the budget, state of emergency reform and critical race theory and ban because it, the governor said he would veto them. Prohibition. So practically speaking, number one, is some judge gonna block it? And number two, are 
teachers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't talk. matter if they lock it or not. They'll have their, their, oh, I see what you mean. I don't think so. Um, I don't see that happening. I, I, I don't even see a lawsuit happening about it so far. Have you heard about a lawsuit? No, but anything good we do that they block, they go to one judge and they block it. I know. But regardless, <laughs> is the prohibition strong? Is it going to punish teachers who teach whites that they're racist because they're white? Yeah, they lose their license. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. But I thought he didn't sign it. it he didn't did. Well, oh, because we got them all into the budget. He signed the budget. So it did pass to prohibit CRT. Okay, I thought that did not get through. Yep, nope, we put it on the budget. I, you know, I, we were saying to each other when we were angling to get certain things in the budget, it's like, that's our only leverage. Once the ink is dried in the budget, like we don't have any more leverage with the governor for the next two years. So we have to get things. Now I'm gonna take a little responsibility also because we Christmas tree the budget and then the Senate Christmas tree, the budget right back to us. And we ended up with an omnibus bill that people are complaining about. It's an omnibus bill. I mean, it's always an omnibus bill, but it really had like a ton of stuff in there that had nothing to do with the budget. And really the Freedom Caucus started that because we put the critical race theory ban and the state of emergency reform in the budget. Oh, the other thing that we got in the budget was the reversal and forgiveness of all of the COVID fines. So yes. Oh, the governor hated that bill. What would you say? I'm sure the Freedom Caucus was also involved to some extent of getting the other great stuff in the budget as far as cutting taxes, getting rid of the tax on dividends yeah. interest. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But everyone agreed to all those things. So that wasn't like a contentious So situation. all Republicans support tax cuts as yeah. opposed to things like allowing for barbers to cut, allowing people to cut hair of their friends for no money in their own backyard or their family. That was controversial, wasn't it? Not every Republican supported that. It was pretty well supported by all Republicans. I don't, I mean, there's like two that like vote with Democrats all the time. Um, so maybe they did, I don't know, I didn't look, but um, it was like one of those bills that was just like Republicans voted yes, Democrats voted no. Um, but that, isn't, that, isn't that wild, I know. But no, all Republicans in New Hampshire support two things. They support gun rights. I mean, really these days they all do, okay? and tax cuts, good and guns and taxes. And that's what they all run on, right? I kept saying during the, the campaign season, why are we all talking about guns and taxes? We're literally living in fascism. Why are we talking about guns and taxes? That's all anyone wanted to talk about. Even, I mean, literally going door to door, even I thought people were gonna ask me more often about like, why don't I wear this damn mask? And like, instead everyone was just like, what's your position on second amendment? And I'm like, all right, we can keep Not talking about that. I locked in my house. <laughs> I guess, you know, educating the citizenry, which, you know, I was born a uh, committed believer in the democracy, but then the more you realize that the average voter, like you say, first of all, most people don't even vote. And then the average voter votes on the basis of who the heck knows what, and almost nothing substantial. It, Again, it was Churchill who said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. So, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what are you looking forward to next session? Any bills that you want to propose or have someone else propose for you that you'd like oh my to- God, I have a list. I'm going to bring my list up. Hold on. I, I, I have a list that I'm trying to dole out to everyone, you know, and find sponsors for. But um, so 
because again, yeah, I can't, obviously number one priority is the state of emergency reform that now the governor has, you know, agreed to in writing. Um, and that's going to be in an expedited bill next year. Uh, but regular bills, um, abolish open container laws. That's just going to be fun. I have, okay. I have a slogan. This is my slogan. Let's make Elm street, the bourbon street of new England. Anyway. Um, uh, oh, removing the commissioner of DHHS's authority to add vaccines to the school schedule. It should be a legislative vote, not just one person deciding whatever they want. Um, make the vaccine registry, which is already like a massive invasion of privacy, make it opt in instead of opt out. Um, add conscientious ex exemptions to uh, the vaccine requirements. Um, some type of mask ban with kids. I haven't really worked out exactly how I want to angle that. Um, I was actually just in the phone with somebody right before this about that. You can just make child abuse illegal. You know, um, changing RSA 446. That was the other state of emergency law. Um, I'm thinking about, okay, so one of the main reasons why employers are mandating vaccines is be just liability, right? They have no liability if somebody's vaccine injured or dies from the vaccine, but they can be sued for COVID. Mm -hmm. So adding in some way, some type of liability at the state level for employers so that they are liable if, if they require that an employee get a vaccine and then they get injured, they should be able to be sued for that. Um Oh my God, I have this amazing nullification bill that I found. I think it's in Oklahoma. And it, uh, and I do have somebody who's going to put it in. It basically just says that any presidential executive order um, can be nullified by either just the attorney general saying no way or the legislature voting. Um, so that, that was fun. Um, there is um, a parent bill of rights bill that passed um, in Florida. And somebody is looking into doing something like that here. Um, it basically allows you to opt out of different parts of your child's public school education. Um, and then uh, requiring colleges and universities to have vaccine exemptions, because it's actually not the case currently. That's one bill. Um, oh, the registry expunging. Okay. So during the state of emergency from January to June, the governor was requiring that everyone who got the COVID vaccine be entered into our vaccine registry system. With, and that was mandatory, which is just like a huge invasion of privacy. And I want the record expunged. Um, ooh, somebody's looking into this. Obviously, none of us here like occupational licenses, period. But I want a bill that says that an occupational license can only be revoked for violating the terms of the license because during the lockdowns and all of that, um, the governor was like holding their licenses over them. You can't violate my orders or you'll have your license pulled, right? It was that. And now it's the licensing board saying, if you don't follow CDC guidance, you're going to have your license pulled. Mm -hmm. um, ooh, we're, we're looking into maybe doing a right to try law for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and making it over the counter. That one's going to be interesting. Wrap up in a minute because the EJS yeah. podcast starts in a minute, but we're going to have you on in a few weeks for sure. Cause yes. th there's a lot I want to talk about the wish list for now. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, so for now, how can people find out more about you and follow your awesome work? 
um, go to rebuildnh.com or reopennh.com and get on our mailing list. And um, I send out like video updates all the time and we send out emails all the time, although we are trying to take a little bit of a break here for a couple of weeks. But um, we keep everyone really well informed of the day to day of the legislature and everything that's happening. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Their email list is phenomenal. So get on their email list. Okay. Thank you so much. We have to run. We're going to have you back on soon. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Thank Bye. you so much, Melissa. Thank you guys for all your support. Bye.